If you have your Bibles this morning, take them and turn to the book of Acts today. By the way, if you have your Bibles and you're ready to open them up today, just say amen, would you? Acts chapter 2 today, our Game Changer series. And as you turn to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22 today, I want to share just a little bit about our worship search because in about three weeks, we're going to have someone here in view of a call and uh, be asking him to serve as our, our worship pastor. This search is kind of a nationwide search. Uh, we've had a consultant involved. We had six prominent prospects for this. And, um, and then we also had our own Brad Riley, who was part of the mix. Many of you know that Brad was an associate while, uh, while serving on our staff over the last year and a half. And uh, I really didn't know what we had in Brad. I thought Brad, you know, was a great associate. But uh, he began to be our interim uh, some months ago now. And each week has been a great week for us with Brad. Uh, he's actually on vacation today, which makes it convenient for me to talk about him and others without him being here today. I always enjoy that. Um, but nonetheless, Brad's always been part of that mix. Eventually, we moved from six uh, to two, or from seven to two, actually, and Brad was still part of that mix. And uh, we made some visits with a very prominent worship pastor at another church and uh, came to the conclusion that God had already raised up the person we need as our worship pastor here, and his name's Brad Riley. Now, let me just tell you this, a lot of things I can say about that, but one of the things I will say about that is that I've never been more sure about a staff call, and one of the things that came to my mind was the story of David being called to be king, that Samuel the prophet was told to go to the house of Jesse. He looked at each of the sons of Jesse that were present, and uh, each time they looked great on paper, uh, they were... Uh, what looked like a prominent individual that might become king someday. But each time uh, the Lord told Nathan the prophet, this is not the man. In fact, he got to the end of the list there and uh, finally said to Jesse, don't you have any other sons? Jesse said, we got one. He's out in the field out there, but he doesn't really stack up on paper like everybody else does. Well, go get him. And so brought him back. And uh, as soon as uh, the prophet saw uh, this, this man, whose name is David, he heard the Lord say, this is the man. Our process has brought us to that place. It's a very spiritual process. It's a very exciting process. That's a step never been more convinced. Here's a young man that was raised here. Uh, God has given him gifts. But more than that, God has given him an anointing that's very, very unusual. One of the most encouraging, one of the most exuberant young men I've ever been around. So we're going to have him in view of a call on a March 10th. And so just be in prayer with us in that process. It's a huge responsibility. It's a commitment to the next generation, but it's also uh, realizing who God has placed here in our midst. He'll grow up with us. He'll be a part of what we do together. He'll have gray hair with us at some point down the road. It won't, it won't take long. But the bottom line is, we believe that, that Brad Riley and his precious wife, Kim, are here for such a time as this, and we're very excited about it. Amen? Thank you. And you pray about this. Continue to pray about this. It's a very special moment. Let's stand together as we read God's Word, beginning in Acts chapter 2 today. Acts chapter 2, game-changing message. This is the game-changing message at Pentecost. Now, there are times we have conversations with people about messages that change your world. Some of you in this room, others perhaps who are older, remember the message of Pearl Harbor and how it changed our world. Some of you here today may remember when you first heard about President John F. Kennedy assassinated in 1962. You may have been around at the time and you remember where you were at that moment. Others 
remember when the first man walked on the moon, when America put a man on the moon and he walked for the first time on the moon and the whole nation, the whole world was mesmerized. In a more tragic way, 911 was a moment where the news and the message we heard stopped everything in the world and really the world has not been the same since that time. Key moments, key messages that changed the course of history. Today, we're going to read about one of those messages. It's the first message Peter preached after Pentecost. It's the message that changed the world. It's the message that keeps changing the world today. And you find it in Acts chapter 22, beginning, or Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. And I will read the whole message here all the way down to verse 41. So Peter stands up at Pentecost and says to the assembled group of people there, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But... God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Isn't that a great line? For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, Peter says in verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you today, regarding the patriarch David, he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him that an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, referring to his prophecy. All that David said prophesied about Christ. It says this, he looked ahead, spoke ahead of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now that concludes the message of Peter, but look at the response. Now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he silently testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. Father, today, thank you for Pentecost. Thank you for the message of Peter. Thank you that it still resonates and rocks our world in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Be seated if you would. What a huge passage of Scripture today that I'm going to attempt to share with you over these next few moments. But here's what I want you to see. 
I want you to see that no matter how many years have passed, no matter how many centuries are under our belt, the same message that Peter preached is the message, the true message, the original message of the church of Jesus Christ today. If you wanna know what the founder wants for the church, you go back to what the founder did when that foundation was laid. So the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. Peter stands up and preaches this powerful message that becomes a clarion sound, a trumpet sound for the rest of the world. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see many descriptions of this message. The Bible says in Acts chapter four, many who heard this message believed. And in this moment, 3,000 were saved and were baptized a little later. In Acts five, it says, this was the message of this life. In Acts chapter 10, it says the Holy Spirit fell upon these who were listening to the message. In Acts 13, it calls it the message of this salvation. So this is the message of this life, a very different life. That anyone had had up to the point of Christ, this life began to be a different kind of life. I love our little line that we use a lot, real people, real hope, real life, because it refers to this life, the life of Christ, the abundant life of Christ, the salvation life that Jesus gives us. And that's this message that we're looking at today. And the response to that was that 3,000 people who knew their lives were gonna be on the line, repented, were saved, and were baptized, knowing full well that they stepped into an anti-Jesus, anti-church, hostile world that their lives might be at stake. If I were to have a sign-up list today and say, I'd like for at least 3,000 of you to sign up for your death today. And by signing up for your death, what you're saying is, I will profess Christ publicly, be, be baptized, and it may well lead to my death. I wonder how many people would sign up today. Those people knew what they were signing up for. Those people knew what they were committing to, and they stood up at the message of Peter and said, what must we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sin. And that's exactly what they did. Now, what's the message that continues on to this day? Well, let me just say that the gospel message is very comprehensive. If you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you'll find it falls into six key aspects the gospel does. And we've got an acrostic that we use to help people remember what is the message of the gospel throughout the whole Bible. The G of the gospel is God's character. God's a loving, merciful God who doesn't want to punish us for our sin at the, at the same time. A just judge who will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. Read the Old Testament. You'll see the justice of God. You'll see the holiness of God. So the, God, the character of God is very first. Secondly, there is the offense of sin. All through the Bible from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation, the penalty and the power and the punishment of sin are evident. The offense of sin simply says that man is a sinner and he cannot save himself. He needs someone greater than himself to rescue him. The yes of the gospel is what we call the sufficiency of Christ. In essence, Peter stands up and preaches the sufficiency of Christ. That Christ lived a perfect life, that he died, he rose again the third day, and it satisfied God's holy character and the wrath of God against sin. Then there is what we call the personal response. Every person must personally respond to the incredible life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The E of the gospel is the eternal urgency, the fact that we can't be quiet, 
that from the day that Jesus was resurrected onward, the church was about getting the message out because of the eternal urgency of the decisions that would be made. And then the L of the gospel is life transformation. Once Christ comes into our life, once the Holy Spirit begins to indwell us, he changes us from the inside out. Now when Peter preaches at Pentecost, he zeroes in to define the true church and true believers. And so full of the Holy Spirit, he begins to major on what I would call the sufficiency of Christ. When you read verses 22 through 34, 35, 36 that we just read, when you read and analyze the message of Peter, you'll notice what he's not preaching about. You'll notice that this moment, this message that changed the course of the world, that laid the foundation of the church, does not talk about religion. Peter is not preaching about a moral code. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule. He's not political. He's not preaching about just goodwill on the part of man. He's not talking about the fact that anyone with any sincere belief can find their own way to God. None of that is what Peter said when he laid down the foundation of the church. Peter basically said, Jesus Christ is the only sufficient way for salvation. It's Jesus or nothing, and Jesus plus nothing is all you need. That's his message. The sufficiency of Christ, who Jesus really is. His message is exclusively about Christ. And the church was built on the person, the work, the presence of Jesus Christ and the mission of Jesus Christ and nothing else. And those people at Pentecost on that day took the leap after understanding who Jesus was. You know, when you give your life to Christ, you're taking a leap of faith. You really are. You're taking a leap of faith where you're saying, I am going to be all in, all out for Christ. I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm not going to add anything to him. I'm just going to die. I'm going to jump into Christ. And that's what they did. A year and a half ago, my son, who lives in Denver, his name's Josh, he lives in Denver. My wife and I went up and, and uh, visited with him. It was a summer, about a year and a half ago. And, and uh, while there, he wanted to take us out to St. Mary's Glacier, which is a beautiful mountainous area. We hiked up a mile or two, and then there was the glacier. It was partially melted because it was summer. And so there's this beautiful pool of water, very clear, very cold, and mountains around it. And one of the things he wanted to do was to show us this cliff that people sometimes dove off up. So we made the trip up there, and uh, when we got up there, he said, Dad, I'm going to jump from the cliff. I want you to jump with me. Well, when I was 20 years old, I jumped off a cliff in Oklahoma, probably the highest spot in Oklahoma because we don't have any real mountains, about 100 feet high over Lake Murray. Had a great time with that, but didn't plan to do it at age 60. So my son challenges me to go up there. We go up on the top of St. Mary's Glacier and there's about 60, 80 people in the area and they're all looking at this cliff. Two people have jumped off this cliff before we arrive or about the time we arrive. And so Josh and I make our way up the cliff. I'm assessing everything. I'm, I'm doing a damage assessment. I'm doing a risk assessment. I'm assessing whether I have life insurance. I'm assessing whether I'm gonna look like a fool. And all those things are really kind of happening in my mind. And uh, so Josh makes his way up there. He's already jumped off this before when I was not there. So he kind of knows what to expect. Well, we get up there, and I just tell you, 55, 60 feet looks a whole lot further when you're up on the mountain than it does when you're down on the ground there. Yep. And I looked off. 
and I could see large, massive boulders in the water, and I saw a certain spot I had to clear if I was going to jump. So I get up there, and I'm thinking about everything in the world. I'm, I'm, I'm evaluating. I'm watching my life pass before me. My wife is actually there encouraging me to go, which makes me question what she's thinking about. And so there I am, and Josh jumps first, and now I have no choice, right? I cannot. I cannot climb back down that mountain. There are people watching me. There's a reputation to uphold. My son has already done that. I'm going to jump. It's just a matter of how I'm going to get there to do it, right? So I finally take my step or two, and I realize, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit, basically is what I'm thinking. And I jump, and I survive. But it was a leap of faith that said, once I take this step, there's no going back. It's a moment of fear, a moment of concern, and finally a moment of commitment. At Pentecost that day, these people made an amazing and incredible decision of great risk, great commitment, great investment based on the message that you're listening to today, what Peter preached about Jesus. And what Peter preached about Jesus can be summarized into this thing right here, knowing Jesus fully. The Christian message is not one of religion, it's not one of doing good, it's, it's knowing Jesus in a personal way. In Matthew chapter seven, verse 23, Jesus is talking about many who will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? Didn't we do many miracles in your name? And Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And I, I, I think the line that he says that's most clear is, I never knew you. And then in John chapter 17, verse three, Jesus himself defines eternal life in this amazing chapter that is really a chapter of prayer before he goes to the cross and later on ascends to the Father. And here's what he says. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not religion. Eternal life is having a personal relationship with the author of eternal life, Jesus Christ himself. So when Peter stands up and preaches at Pentecost, he preaches only and exclusively about Jesus. And if you walk through this message with me today, you're going to see that it's a step-by-step -step understanding of coming to know Jesus. Now, let me share with you today, I want you to stick with me through all five steps, all five levels that Peter preaches about when it comes to knowing who Jesus is. And I'm gonna do that in a step-by-step -step process with these steps that are in front of us today. Because as he begins this message, he says as a first step, you know about this man, verse 22, who is Jesus the Nazarene, a man. So Peter gets up and begins preaching about, first of all, this man, Jesus of Nazarene, of Nazareth. Now Nazareth is not a large community at that point, probably two to three, maybe 400 people lived in Nazareth. But Jesus was known as the son of Joseph the carpenter, the son of Mary, and there's a lot, of, a lot of talk about Mary and the fact that she said that she had a son who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was known as a Nazarene from that small community as a carpenter's son, and later on as a man who began to teach and do good things. So the people knew who had gathered from all over at Pentecost, they knew about this Jesus, but knowing about Jesus in this way as Jesus a Nazarene, a man, is not enough for them to make a commitment to knowing him as who he really is. 
So we have Jesus, the Nazarene, a man. Peter escalates the argument by taking another step about Jesus. I'm gonna stand up on this second step here in front of you because you need more than a ground floor understanding of who Jesus is to actually be a follower. You need to know not only that he was a man, but he was more than that, attested by God. Now that line is an interesting line because the word attested by God means that God was working through him in supernatural ways. As a matter of fact, when you walk through the scriptures beginning in verse 22, it uses three words. He was attested by God through miracles, through wonders, through signs. So Jesus was healing the sick, raising up the lame, causing the blind to see, the mute to speak, even raised dead Lazarus. He had been dead for several days. You see, Jesus calming the winds and the waves and, and with his teaching and, and with his demonstration of power, people are beginning to notice him. The feeding of the multitudes where he takes a few loaves and fish and breaks them and feeds 5,000 men in addition to the, the women and children show us that, that Jesus is being attested by God as someone other than Jesus, the Nazarene, a man. We see Jesus in this step two as someone who has more power, unexplainable power more than anyone else. I remind you that in the Old Testament, even Pharaoh's magicians were able to perform some of the signs that Moses performed. So there is magic in a sense out there and people look at that and say, I bet somebody else could do that miracle. Not enough to cause someone to follow Jesus. But step three, according to Peter, as Peter gets into this understanding of who Jesus actually is, says that Jesus, God raised up again. In verse 24, you see it. And in verse 32, you see it as well, that God raised up this Jesus after he had actually literally died. Now, many came to know about Jesus at this moment, at this step. Many come to follow Jesus at this step. They have to continue on up. But, but you have to believe that, that Jesus rose from the dead in order to follow him because nobody ever follows a dead man. And by the way, the founder of every religion on planet earth is now dead except Jesus Christ. And so here is Jesus. The Bible says God raised him up again. What a line. What a line. Obviously unique, but not everyone who knew Jesus rose from the dead followed Jesus. The Bible said the hundreds saw him after his resurrection and many did not follow him. You know, you could actually be a person today that believes that Jesus the Nazarene walked on earth, that he was a miracle worker, a sign performer, a wonder worker, and that you could actually believe he rose from the dead and still not follow him. Let me remind you, the Bible says even the demons believe, yet they shudder, they tremble. Because there's a point beyond this where you have to take a leap. And some people see Jesus risen from the dead who do not leap. There's another step. And that next step that Peter brings us to is what we would call the, the step of fulfilling promises on the other side of the resurrection. The Bible says this he has poured forth. The Holy Spirit he has poured forth. He promised that and now he's pouring that forth. In other words, post-resurrection, Jesus is fulfilling promises he made before he died, before he buried, was buried, and before he rose again. He's on the other side of this resurrection thing and he's still fulfilling promises. Jesus went out of his way to show people that he really was alive. When he got with his disciples in a private room, he ate boiled fish and honeycomb, the scripture says in Luke 24. Why would he do that other than just to demonstrate 
that he was real, that he was alive, he was living. He said to Thomas, I want you to put your fingers in my side and look at the nail prints in my hand so that you'll know I've really risen again from the dead. And then at Pentecost, Peter said, now he's doing what he said he would do. He's pouring out the Spirit. He's pouring out the promise from the Father. Jesus said he would do it. He's risen from the dead. But not only that, he's now fulfilling everything he said. He'll be with us forever and ever. And that was a powerful display of the resurrection life of Jesus. But the fifth step, the step where you get to the place of leaping, is that step where Peter says, by way of conclusion, in verse 36, God made him Lord in Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God made him Lord in Christ. Think about those words. Lord, master of the universe. Christ, Messiah, appointed one. It's what he's talking about. This is the one that God said from the beginning would come and pay for sin. This is the one that God said created the heavens and the earth. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him Lord and God. And it's this conviction that we come into agreement with that those New Testament followers said, it's time to leap. I believe that he is Jesus the Nazarene. I believe he was a wonder worker of God. I believe that he was buried after being crucified and rose from the dead. I believe he's fulfilling the promises he made before the resurrection. And I believe God has made him both Lord and God. I am ready to leap without hesitation. That's the moment when you come into agreement with God about who Jesus is and jump and jump with intention that you will fully jump into his arms. And I want to say to you today that some of you believe in Jesus the Nazarene, a man. And you've watched him, you may even read the Bible about him. And if you read the Bible, you have to conclude these miracles that were taking place. So maybe you're on this first or second step. Some of you even go so far as to say, well, the evidence is there. Jesus rose from the dead. Books have been written about this. No one can disprove that claim. So clearly Jesus rose from the dead. And maybe some of you are even to this place of saying, he does seem like he's fulfilling the promises he made before the resurrection. The Holy Spirit would come. But when you read the declaration that God has made him both Lord and God and therefore worthy to live for and die for, you have yet to say, I'm in agreement with that. And there's a moment where you have to be convinced in order to jump, to leap. I've never jumped out of an airplane before, but my youngest daughter, one day after her 18th birthday, jumped out of a perfectly healthy airplane at 14,000 feet and called me the next day to tell me about it. Her mistake was she didn't ask permission before she did it. Her older sister had taken her on a trip and they decided to, to run out a plane and skydive. Now, our youngest daughter is kind of a uh, risky kind of girl. She likes to do things like that. She's a mountain climber. She likes to do various things like that. And my oldest daughter, who secured the airplane and the lessons and all that, chickened out at the last minute, was not willing to take the leap. And so little Caroline was jumping out by herself. My conversation with her later on, basically I said in a different tone, what were you thinking? Right, I said in a different tone though, more of a fatherly tone, like what in the world were you thinking? That kind of talk, because I was stunned that she would do something like that. 
said, Dad, I, I saw the instructor. I saw he had been on thousands of missions. I knew that he was healthy. He had never had a parachute not open. I saw the plane, thought, that was, thought it was all okay. Uh, I went through the lessons of it all. Uh, I put the parachute on. I sat in the right seat. When it came time to jump, I just felt like it was the right thing to do. And, and as she jumped, I said, what were you thinking after you jumped? She said, I only thought about the parachute because I knew that if I didn't get the ripcord, if the parachute didn't open, nothing would break my fall 14,000 feet down to the earth. Now, what a great story. Because that story is the truth until you're willing to jump out of the airplane of your own religion or your own idea of how to get to God. Until you're willing to put all your faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ as the parachute that breaks the fall of sin and breaks the fall of separation. You're not really there yet. You have to take the leap of faith like these people did and give their entire lives to Christ on the basis of the fact that Jesus is who God said he was. We must be there. We must be there. It doesn't matter how religious or irreligious you are. It doesn't matter how you cleaned up your act or not cleaned up your act. It doesn't matter how good your intentions or bad your intentions are. You have to come to the place of saying, I believe with God that, that God has made Jesus Lord and Christ, and I'm willing to put my faith and trust in him. And 3,000 people that day were cut to the heart. In fact, when you look at the personal response that we inevitably arrive at here, the personal response in verse 37 and 38, you'll see that each of us has to be at that place of personally responding. Look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what should we do? So they're pierced to the heart when they hear all these things about Jesus. They know about Jesus, but, but now they realize that they put Jesus to death by their own sin. And when they came to that realization that they put the only sinless man that's ever walked on planet Earth to death because of their sin, that's when they were pierced to the heart and said, what must we do? We need to be forgiven. We need to be saved. Peter makes it very plain, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now they feel the conviction. Now that conviction is a painful conviction in a sense. It's not a physically painful one, but it's a painful conviction in the sense of guilt. And we talk about guilt like we don't want guilt in our life, but you want this guilt. This guilt is the true guilt that's on every person because our sin put Christ on the cross. John Stott made this statement, before we can see the cross as something done for us, we must see it as something done by us. Until you can say, Jesus, was put on the cross because of my sin, you can't really say. Jesus was put on the cross for my sin. And you need to be at that place where you see Jesus on the cross for your sin. And that's how we know we're ready. We know we're ready because we come to the place of saying, I know that when I sinned, I sinned against God. I didn't just offend my friend. I didn't just offend a spouse or a loved one. I offend Almighty God. I don't just defend society. My offense is against God, and I put Jesus on that cross. Peter said, Jesus, this Jesus, you nailed him to the cross. You crucified him. When they said, what must we do to be saved? Peter says, here's what you do. Repent and be baptized because of the remission of your sin, and you too shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, repentance is a simple thing. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus talks about the message of the gospel. It's the message that has been preached all the way through, all the way through the Bible. You'll find the same thing. Repent 
and believe, he says in Mark chapter one and verse 15. Repent and believe in the gospel, what we've talked about. In 1 Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine, there's a great line that probably the best theological explanation of repentance and faith that you can find. It's one act, two results. And Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. And he says, here's what we've heard about you. Here's what we know happened to you. Because what happened is you turned to God from sin to serve the living and true God. That's what repentance is. Turning to God, when you hear the message of the gospel, turning to God, putting your back towards sin and began to serve the living and true God, moving this way instead of that way because you hear the message of the gospel and you conclude with God that God has made Jesus both Lord and God and Christ. And so we turn and we move that way. So the Bible says that when they ask Peter, what must we do? He says, repent. And the idea is to turn, change your mind about Jesus, change your mind about God, and acknowledge that he's who he says he is. It's all about how you align with Jesus. It's all about your willingness to know him, love him, follow him. And then you can be baptized as a demonstration of the fact that you have been forgiven of your sins by turning from sin to Christ. What a powerful statement. But the idea behind that is no looking back, no second regrets, not turning back to sin, self, or complacency, but leaping all in to follow Christ. That's what they did. That's what we do. Maybe one of the most amazing testimonies I've seen in my ministry is a guy whose name was Golam Abbasi. <coughs> Excuse me. Golam was raised in Iran. And he was a very prominent leader in Iran uh, during the time of the upheaval where the Shah of Iran was ushered out and the Ayatollah Khamenei came into power. Well, because Golam was a follower of the Shah of Iran, um, he was put in prison. And in prison, someone slipped him a copy of the scriptures in his own language, New Testament. And he hid that New Testament and read through it. And as he read through it, he came to the conclusion that this Jesus that he had never heard of before was sent from God and was the savior of the world. He put his faith and trust in Christ and began to follow him as much as he could in prison, but having no contact with other Christians. He was brought before a firing squad. The guns misfired. He was put back into prison, eventually escaped, made his way to America. And I met Golan because he lived in an apartment near the church I pastored in North Oklahoma City, Redmond, Oklahoma. And I knocked on an apartment door one day. He opened the door. I introduced myself, invited him to church, and he said this to me. He said, what took you so long? I said, what are you talking about? He said, I came to America thinking that the church was here. And I've asked God to send somebody from the church to my house to tell me how to follow Jesus in a daily way. And Golam started coming to our church that day. I baptized him later on and uh, watched him grow. I've never seen a man who so quickly and immediately obeys some new command he reads about in the scripture, some new directive that Christ gives him because he'd never known it before. He discovers it and he immediately dropped whatever it was he was doing, whatever practice, whatever habit, he laid it down and followed Christ completely. And he said to me one day, I'm not afraid of what people will think. I have been in jail. I've had my time in front of a firing squad. I, I've lost my family over all that's gone through uh, my life and all the upheaval in my nation. I'm not, I'm not afraid to follow Jesus. When I gave my life to him, it was all in for all of my life. You know, that's what salvation really is. It really is saying, I'll leap because you are 
who you say you are. And 3,000 people were baptized that day. He responded to that. The church began with an immediate, complete, public response to Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the celebration of baptizing 3,000 people on that day? Amazing. I've never baptized 3,000 people, but I'm up for it. I'm up for it. When God sends that kind of movement, here's the deal. Today, I want you to ask yourself, what step am I on as it regards to Christ? Is Christ just a man, a Nazarene that I've read about? Or is it something more? Is he a miracle worker? Am I willing to buy into that, that he's a miracle worker, that he performs signs and, and wonders? Are you willing to embrace the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, was resurrected? Are you willing to acknowledge that God sent the Holy Spirit as a result of Jesus' promise? And now Jesus on the other side of resurrection is fulfilling promises that he made before the resurrection. But are you willing to accept that this Jesus, God, has made Lord and Christ? And are you willing to embrace that and leap without looking back? I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. And I want you to ask yourself, what step am I on? Today, many of you in this room have heard of Jesus and know about the things he's done. But maybe you haven't come to the place where you've said, I'm leaping, I'm jumping. I'm putting all that I have and all that I want for my future, I'm I'm putting all my past and all all my life in the hands of Christ because God has made him both Lord and Christ. And I believe that. Are you willing to jump if you never have? Are you willing to turn from sin and put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone? This is the message of Pentecost. It's perpetually the message of the cross until Christ comes back. That's who we'll be preaching. It won't change. It won't become more palatable. It won't become easier. It won't become different. This is it. This is the message that changed the world, that continues to change the world. Is this the message that has changed your life? That's the question. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm gonna ask our counselors to come to the front. And I'm not gonna make a long appeal. We're just gonna sing, we're gonna worship, we're gonna thank the Lord for his incredible love, for his incredible sacrifice. But during this time of worship, I'm gonna challenge you, if you've never taken the leap, walk this short distance, take the hand of someone and say, today I'm ready to leap into the arms of Christ. Father, I ask you in Jesus' name today, help us know where we stand. Lord, help us to know if we have taken the leap, if we have made the decision, if we have fully bought in, if we are all in to follow Jesus. And Lord, if there's a person in this room that is not all in, that has never made this decision, moving their lives right now, pierce their hearts with the need for them to give themselves to Christ. And Lord, give them this gift of eternal life. Forgive them of sin as they make that decision and let them live the life. Thank you, Father. As we sing over these next few moments, Holy Spirit, I know you're present in this room. I pray that you'll draw people to yourself today. Only you can do that. Only you can make them ready. And then let them respond to you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me?